know, I was looking this past week for a picture of my brothers and my sister, but I think they're all back in New York State, packed up somewhere, and I couldn't find a picture of them. But you know, when, when I was growing up, my brothers and my sister and I used to wrestle. You like to wrestle? You know, when we had so much fun wrestling, and one of the things we would do is we'd get this old carpet. Wherever, whenever we moved anywhere, we'd look for a room where we could roll out this carpet, and that would be our wrestling ring, and we would play tag team. And because I was the youngest, my oldest brother and I were one team, and my other brother and my sister, they were the other team. And we would be wrestling out there, and one thing we would do is crank the arm back behind the back. You know, and just keep cranking it up, cranking it up, until the person would say, I give up. Well, you know, after Aunt Hope and I got married, we had three girls. You know, I did a lot of fun things with the girls, but one thing, they, they never liked to wrestle, you know? They didn't like to wrestle like, we, like the boys do. You guys wrestle? You wrestle? You, you guys, you boys wrestle with each other? Okay, uh, Harry, you know, we'll have to talk to your mom and dad, maybe give you a little brother that sometime you can wrestle with him, okay? But you know, wrestling, wrestling's a lot of fun. But you know, with the, with the girls, you know, I do different things with them. We had a lot of fun. One thing I used to like to do is hold them on the floor and tickle them. And their legs would be kicking and they'd be laughing, but we never wrestled much. You know, sometimes we can wrestle with God. You ever think about that? We can wrestle with God. And God might really be wanting us to do something, and we're saying, no. No, I don't want to do that. But you know, God doesn't crank our arm. He doesn't crank it until we say, okay, God, I give up, I give up, I'll do it. But God does work in our hearts. And sometimes when we know that we should do certain things and we don't do them, and we sense that inside, that's the Holy Spirit of God telling us, you know, Len, you really shouldn't do that, or you really should do this. But sometimes I can wrestle against God and say, I don't want to do that. Or I'd rather not do that. But as God continues to work in our hearts, we stop wrestling with him, and we say, okay, Lord, whatever you want me to do, I give up. I'll do it. And that can come to a lot of different things. You know, when you go to school, there are kids who will do things and say things, and they'll pressure you to do things and say things, and God will say, no, you shouldn't do that. And sometimes you might say, God, I know you, I shouldn't do this or that, or I shouldn't say this or that, but you do it anyway, and we wrestle with God. And the more we say yes to God, and the more we say, God, I give up. I will do what you want me to do. And you know, the Bible says that the Lord knows the plans that he has for us, and his plans are the very, very 
best. When we do what God wants us to do, we can be sure it's not always going to be easy, but we can be sure it will be the very, very best. So even at your age, when you have friends or others who want you to do things that aren't right or say things that aren't right, remember that God is speaking to your heart and saying, you know, you really shouldn't say that, you really shouldn't do that. Give in to the Lord and say, I give up, Lord. I'll do what you want me to do. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the privilege of knowing you as our Savior and Lord. And Lord, I know sometimes we as children and we as adults can wrestle against you and, and say no and resist you. And we pray that we would not do that, but that we would say, Lord, I give up. I will do what you want me to do. I will be what you want me to be. I will say what you want me to say. And we pray that every day we would keep those thoughts in mind and that we would say yes to you and no to sin and no to the world around us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, are both uh, groups meeting today? Okay, you're dismissed. probably notice that uh, my wife is not with me today. The Lord gave us a great seminar yesterday, and she kind of pushed through it physically, and this morning it had caught up with her, so I uh, told her she better stay home and, and recover. Besides, she wrote this message, so she knows what I'm going to say anyway, so uh, I'm kidding, for those of you who don't know any better than that, but <laughs> um, I will share with her, of course, what I've shared this morning, and, and thank you so much for the privilege that you're giving us of serving the Lord here together with you. I'd just like to add uh, a, a quick word to what Keith shared about the transition team. Um, Transition team has been meeting since last January. So we've been meeting for about 14 months. And we've been meeting three out of four Tuesday or Thursday evenings each month as a general rule. And I think this past week we had meeting number, I don't know, 48 or something like that. And... Um, the, your transition team has been very, very committed to the task that God has given us. And as you are able to observe on the PowerPoint as you come in, uh, over the course of this time together, we have uh, prayerfully, very carefully proposed a purpose statement, a mission statement, core values, uh, vision uh, leadership model, rewriting the Constitution and bylaws, which had been requested when Hope and I came here. Uh, all of this has been done by your transition team. And 
uh, a lot of very, very diligent and prayerful and careful work has gone into that. And uh, I want to just uh, publicly uh, thank the transition team for their hard work. And for those of you who may not remember or may not know who's on the transition team, uh, I'm just going to go around as we sit at the table. Um, we have Shelley Whitaker, Pam Robertson, um, Scott Meckley, Bob Kazmerzak, Jason Wilson, Doug Gillen, Keith Meckley, Becky Meckley. And then Hope and I are in on those meetings as well. And uh, all eight of your transition team uh, members have been very committed to what God has given us to do. And thank you for your prayers for us. And as Keith mentioned, we're, we're kind of in the, in the last, in the last uh, phase right now. And we're getting very, very close to where we will narrow it down to making contact with uh, probably three, maybe four of the top candidates that we have uh, looked at. And then we will contact the one that we believe is the, the, our first choice and see if that person is still uh, inclined to want to come here. Uh, as of last contact with those that we had narrowed it down to, they uh, still are very interested in Seneca. And so uh, God has been really, really good in preparing the ground for us, for them, and for you as a church family. So it's, it's getting pretty excited now and pretty exciting. And within the next few weeks, we will be having telephone interviews and, and speaking with them and following up as uh, Keith has shared. So thank you for your prayers. And Lord willing, we will see how he brings it all to fruition in the next few weeks. Now let's pray together before the Lord. Father, we thank you for the privilege of being here together this morning, and we just ask that you would uh, minister to each and every one according to each one's very specific needs as you know them. Speak to us through your word and give us the grace and strength to follow through in obedience to you in every area of our life, and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Okay, we have been looking together at turning toward joy, discovering a joy that circumstances cannot change. And we have noted together that biblical joy is the settled conviction that God sovereignly controls each and every event of the believer's life for his glory and for our good. And when we understand biblical joy in that sense, it really gives us a perspective that we need. We have considered together <clears throat> the joy of community, the joy of adversity, the joy of integrity, and the joy of unity. And this morning we're going to consider together from Philippians chapter 2, the joy of responsibility. <clears throat> 
Very closely related to responsibility is discipline. And concerning the importance of discipline in connection with responsibility, Bobby Knight, who was former uh, basketball coach at Indiana University, said this, Do what has to be done. Do it when it has to be done. Do it as well as it can be done. And do it that way all the time. And then Tom Landry, a former football coach for the Dallas Cowboys and a very dedicated Christian man, said this, Setting a goal is not the main thing. It is deciding how you will go about achieving it and staying with that plan. The key is discipline. Now, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 26, Paul explains three disciplines that need to be developed. In order to make them very personal for us this morning, we're going to express them as resolutions. And to kind of help me... uh, spare my voice here a little bit. I'm not going to read the whole passage, but we'll read it as we work through it. The first discipline Paul sets forth for us is, I will do my part. Notice verse 12. Paul writes, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Notice Paul's words here. You know, every word in the Bible is important. There is not one word in the Bible that is not important. So notice here where Paul says, work out your salvation. He does not say, work for your salvation. He says, work out your salvation. In Philippians 1.1, the beginning of this letter Paul addresses the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. And then he says, work out your salvation. So it is clear that Paul is addressing believers here. He is writing clearly to those who know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And he tells them, work out your salvation. He's speaking here of working something through to its full completion. The phrase, work out, was used to describe uh, the work that miners did in Paul's day. They were told to work out what was already there. So miners would work out what the Creator had already placed there. And so carrying that same truth over to what Paul is saying here is that God, the Creator, who put the stuff in the mind to begin with, God, the author of salvation, has put salvation in the heart, and now it is the responsibility of the believer to work that out to its completion, just as the miners would work out of the mind that which God had already placed there. The New Testament is very clear about the nature of our salvation. Salvation is not the result of man's efforts. But rather, our salvation is the result of the grace of God. 
I, I love the song we sang this morning. It's all of grace. You know, think about that. Salvation is all of grace. Anything that God does in our lives and through our lives is all of grace. Every blessing that we have is by the grace of God. Anything that God does through our lives for his glory is by his grace. It's not us. When the time comes that God sends here his man, his choice for you as a church family in the future, that will not be only because of the hard work of your transition team. And we'll be talking about how one works with the other in a moment here. But it will all be of the grace of God. The grace of God in the individuals sitting around those tables. The grace of God operating on behalf of this church family and in the life of the person and family who are going to be coming here. It's all of God's grace that is all being worked out for his glory. Now, having said that salvation is not the result of man's efforts, but all of God's grace, we do see in many New Testament scriptures where the doctrine of salvation apart from works is taught, the doctrine of salvation unto good works is also found. And a perfect passage is found for us in the previous book, if you're in Philippians, just turn back a few pages, if you would, to or Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 through 10. These verses are very familiar to most of you, I'm sure. Ephesians chapter 2, <clears throat> verses 8 through 10. Paul is writing here as well, and he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So let's just consider that part first of all. Salvation, the fact, if you are a child of God this morning, through faith in Jesus Christ, it is only because of the grace of God in our lives. That's it. God's grace. Now notice, Paul goes on to say in the very same context, for we are his workmanship, creating in Christ Jesus, here it is, for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So salvation, being saved, being brought out of darkness into light, being brought from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God, instead of being children of the devil to children of God through faith in Christ, that whole dramatic and inexplicable transformation from death to life is all from the grace of God. And then, because we have been saved. God has prepared from before eternity good works 
that we are to do. And you know, that can be a, a broad perspective, but I believe it can also be a very specific perspective. God has a specific plan for each and every person here this morning. And God's broad perspective is that we are to do good works, that he has planned from beforehand. But specifically, he has a perfect plan for each and every one of us and the good works that we are to do. And so, good works are a very, very important part of the Christian life, but in the right order and in the right context. We're saved by grace and grace alone. And we are saved unto, to perform and to do good works. Here's a great statement by one of my favorite authors, Jerry Bridges. He says, We Christians may be very disciplined and industrious in our business, our studies, our home, or even our ministry. But we tend to be lazy when it comes to exercise in our own spiritual lives. We are to train ourselves to be godly. And so, the great importance of our responsibility to work out our salvation is underscored by the instruction to do so here in Philippians chapter 2 with fear and trembling. Those are the words Paul uses. This has to do with a proper sense of awe and responsibility. Paul took the responsibility of the believer very seriously. They were not to enter into this process with a relaxed and easy attitude. The temptation of the world and the devious strategies of the, de of the devil demanded a sober approach to their Christian growth. And so, discipline number one, I will do my part. Discipline number two, I will depend on God. Notice verse 13. Paul continues, he says, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. There is one worker in verse 12, that is the Christian, is working out his own salvation. And there is another worker in verse 13. God is at work in the Christian. It is God who is at work in in you. God is the one who is constantly putting forth his power in the believer, the Philippians and you and me. One of my favorite illustrations of this cooperative partnership between God and the believer is an illustration I read years ago about a pastor who visited his farmer a farmer who was a, a member of his church. He visited the farmer, and he looked around, and he was quite impressed. And he said, Mangano, you and God have a beautiful farm here. And uh, Mangano, the farmer, looked at the pastor, and he said, Pastor, you should have seen this farm when God had it all by himself. Now, he didn't mean any disrespect, but it takes the cooperative effort. We could have a field 
and we do have fields around. I've shared with you about uh, where we lived back in central New York, and we had two acres, and the back part of our two acres uh, had been left for years. It was a mess. It had not been mown, had not been cared for for over five years. So when we moved in, uh, we had a little piece of uh, yard in front of the house, between the house and the road, and then behind the house, there was a little patch of yard, and then behind it, there was about an acre and a half that was just a mess. And again, grown up, not mown for over five years. Well, one of the men in the church, and I've shared some of this with you, one of the men in the church, I, I talked to him one day, and I said, his name was Keith, I said, Keith, um, would you mind coming and with your bush hog and, and just getting that down for me? I said, once, I, once you get it down, I'll be able to take care of it. He said, sure, I'll do that. So he came one morning with his bush hog, and he got that, I mean, that stuff was up that high. And he just went out there with that bush hog, and he got that stuff down, and it still looked a mess. But I got my, my, uh, my tractor, a little tractor, it was a Jacobson mower, and I got out there, and I just started going through it, slowly. I cut up everything you can imagine. Snakes, toads, beehives, everything, rocks, it, it was a mess. But I just kept mowing it, and kept mowing it, and kept mowing it. And it looked just as good as our neighbor who went and plowed everything up and harrowed it, disked it, and planted it with, with grass seed. In, in a year, ours looked just as good. And again, not, not meaning any disrespect. When God had that acre and a half back there, he had it. But I came along and I cooperated with him, as it were, and it looked a lot better. Is, is this making any sense? I don't mean any disrespect. But when God works in our hearts, we have to be a willing partner with him for him to be able to do what he needs to do. That's why Paul says, it is God who works in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. He says here, first of all, work out your own salvation. Work it out. Bring it to completion, what God has begun in you. Work it out. For it is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. So it is a cooperative effort, something that requires us to be diligent in what he gives us to do. The Bible tells us, and you know this, this is one of my favorite verses, that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above and beyond all that we could ever ask or think according to the power that works in us. That's Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now what is that power that is at work in us? For those of us who know Jesus Christ as our personal Savior and Lord, the, work that is at, the power that is at work in us is much, much more powerful, and even though it blows my mind, much more powerful than, than those locomotives that go by. I, I, it amazes me. 
Uh, and sometimes, you know, I'm a country guy at heart. I'll come out and I'll just stand there and watch it and count the cars. One day I counted 157. And you know how many locomotives were in the front? Two. Two pulling the whole thing. And some of them were those black uh, petroleum things, probably filled. That's, that's tremendous power. But what is the power that is at work in the believer's life? The very same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That's power. The very same power that, that blew that stone away and raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the very same power that is at work in you and me as children of God. And so, we have here where we are to work out our own salvation, but we also have where God is at work in us to will and to work out his perfect plan in our lives. The desire and the deed belong to God. The prompting and the performing belong to God. I think F.B. Meyer said it the best way. Listen to what he says. He, that is God, may be working in you to confess to that fellow Christian that you are unkind in your speech or act. Work it out. God may be working in you to give up that line of business about which you have been doubtful lately. Give it up. God may be working in you to be sweeter in your home and gentler in your speech. Begin. God may be working in you to alter your relations with some with whom you have dealings that are not as they should be. Alter them. This very day, let God begin to speak and work and will, and then work out what he works in. God will not work apart from you but he wants to work through you. Let him yield to him and let this be the day when you shall begin to live in the power of the mighty indwelling one. There it is. This is God's will. Do it. This is what God wants you to do. Do it. This is what God does not want you to do any longer. Stop. This is how God wants you to speak. Start speaking that way. This is the person God wants you to go to and share Jesus Christ with him. Go. So it is the effort of God working in the believer and the believer submitting to the will of God and allowing God to work in and through him. And so our salvation is by grace alone. But our works are to follow. And that is where God works in us to will and to do. So discipline number one is I will do my part. Discipline number two is I will depend on God to do my part. Discipline number three, I will be different from the world. Now notice the contrast between the end of verse 13 and the beginning of verse 14. We just saw as God works at you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Verse 14, do all things 
without grumbling or disputing. So we are told that it is God who does the work in verse 13, and then without so much as a transition sentence or a transition word, Paul writes, do all things. And here, again, is a vivid illustration of what we've been looking at. God is working, and we are to be working as well. When we are obedient to do all that God wants us to do, then we have the joy of entering into all that God is doing in us. Now, it would be unlike Paul to just leave us hanging when the discipline number three is, I will be different from the world. Paul isn't just going to say, okay, be different from the world. He's going to show us how to do it under the direction of the Holy Spirit of God. As Christians, we must live in the world, but there should be a noticeable difference in our lifestyle. The people of the world often murmur and complain and gripe, but we should not. The people of the world often live according to the crooked standard in a corrupt ethic, but we are to be blameless and innocent. The people of the world often inhabit the darkness, but we are to shine as lights. The people of the world often hold out empty hands to an empty generation, but we are to offer the word of life. So verse 14 addresses cheerful living in an unhappy world. Have you ever really noticed how unhappy a lot of people in the world are? If you're driving down the road and you come up to a stop sign, well, better, better said, a, a traffic light, and you're sitting at a traffic light, just look to your left or right sometime if you're in a double lane and just look at people's faces. There's a lot of unhappiness there. And if you go into the grocery store or, or to another store and you look at people, there's a lot of unhappiness. A lot of unhappiness. You know, some people are, are, have such long, long countenance that they could drink a churn dry without even picking it up. Can you picture that? That's a sad, sad countenance. But man, it's all around us. And we are to be living cheerfully in an unhappy world. And that's why Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Don't you just love that word, grumbling, grumbling? It's quite descriptive, isn't it? The way you said it, the way you say it. Grumbling is an outward expression of an inner lawlessness and rebellion that shakes the fist in the face of God and repudiates his right to rule that questions his love and wisdom. Whenever I think of the word grumbling, you know who comes to my mind? Israel. The people of God in the Old Testament. Think about it. I just jotted down a few thoughts here. In in the Old Testament, we see how, really, the Israelites turned grumbling into an Olympic sport. These guys would have won 
hands down. They would have beaten anyone. They grumbled at the Red Sea when they saw the chariots of Egypt coming after them. They grumbled at Marah because the water was bitter. They grumbled in the wilderness when they had no food. They grumbled at Rephidim where they had no water. They grumbled at Kadesh Barnea because the spies reported of giants in the promised land. Moses told them that their grumbling was really not against him, but against God. And you know, grumbling is exactly that. Grumbling is not against the person that you're grumbling to or at. Grumbling is against God. Because, in essence, we're shaking our fist at God. What is this, God? Here we are at the Red Sea, and the Egyptians are coming after us. Here we are in Marah. We need water, and the water is no good to drink. Here we are in Kadesh Barnea, and we're ready to cross into the Promised Land, and the spies come back and tell us we can't. Grumble, grumble, grumble. And they paid the consequences for it. And they were big, big consequences. Disputing, Paul writes. Disputing is an attitude of arguing, questioning, doubting, passing judgment, and dissenting. So grumbling is an outward attitude, or or an outward activity, pardon me, that grows out of an inward attitude of disputing. A person who grumbles against God will eventually dispute with God. Then verse 15 addresses straight living in a crooked world. In verse 15, Paul writes, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as light in the world. Boy, these words really describe our world, don't they? We are told to live blameless, innocent, above reproach. Blameless is to live with integrity. Innocent is to be pure. Above reproach is to live in such a way that no one, believer or unbeliever, can justifiably point an accusing finger. And such living is necessary because we live in a crooked and perverse generation. The word here, crooked, really comes from the word scoliosis or a curvature of the spine. And perverse means that which is permanently disfigured or distorted. In a, in a book entitled the day America told the truth, we have this statistic. 91% or 9 out of 10 Americans lie on a regular basis. 86% of people lie to their parents. 75% of people lie to friends. 73% of people lie to siblings. 69 percent of people lie to their lovers. 61% of people lie to their boss. 59% of people lie to their children. We live in a crooked 
and perverse generation. Our world is a mess. And Paul says, be different. Be different from the world. And that's where he addresses in verses 15 and 16, radiant living in a dark world. Notice what he says here about appearing as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. In the midst of such a dark world, as believers, we are not to just exist. We are to shine forth as lights. We are to be different. When we go to work, we are to be different. When we stop and pump gas, if we have anything, unless we just do it with our credit card and go on our way, or if we have contact with someone in a convenience store, or whatever the case might be, we are to be different. We are to act differently. We are to speak differently. We are to be lights in a dark world. We should be a refreshment to people. We should be not only a light, but we hold forth the word of life. When we shop, wherever we shop, we can say a friendly word to someone. We can smile. And we can care and just be different. Be different from the world in which we live. And trust God to open doors for us, not just to be nice, but to share the good news that people so desperately need. Jesus said, While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And then he told his disciples, You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men. And Paul reminded all Christians, you and me included, You were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Perhaps we are no more like Jesus Christ than when we are walking in the light. Because he said, I am the light. He told his disciples, you are to be light. And then Paul reiterates it in different words. You were once darkness, but now you are light. Walk as children of light. Be different. The world is dark. The world is crooked. The world is perverse. We are to be straight. We are to be pure. We are to be godly. We are to be light in a very, very dark world. Alec Moyer writes this. Light is a beautiful illustration of something that does what it has to do by being what it ought to be. What does light do? Light dispels darkness just by its nature. And we, by being light, can dispel the darkness of sin by being what God wants us to be. It's therefore very appropriate in Paul's argument in these verses Responsibility for the world around, outreach, making an impact, telling others about Jesus. But you know, these thoughts that Paul entertains for us only come after he emphasizes personal holiness. The only way we can really have an impact in a perverse, crooked, dark world is by being what God wants us to be. 
And we, when we are what God wants us to be, then we can do what God wants us to do. So it's so very, very important that we are what God wants us to be so that we can do what he wants us to do. We are light so we can be light and dispel darkness. Jonathan Edwards. I'm sure you've heard of him. Probably most well-known for his, his message, his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He, Jonathan Edwards was characterized by a disciplined commitment to personal holiness. He believed that salvation and sanctification were holy of God, but he also understood his own responsibility. He used to make resolutions, and one of them was this. Resolved never to do anything which I would be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. That's a pretty good resolution, don't you think? To never do anything that I would not, that I would not want to be doing in the final hour of my life. That's moment by moment awareness of the presence of God in our lives. How important it is for us to live in the presence of God. That was one thing we always used to emphasize with our girls. And Lord knows, they weren't perfect and we weren't perfect parents and only by the grace of God are they where they are today. We, we don't, well, we collaborated with God, but he did most of the work, believe me. And, and to emphasize with them, we didn't talk about name, remember your name, who you are, or remember I'm the pastor. We, didn't, we, we never went there. We just said, remember, God is always with you. He knows not only what you say and do, but he knows your thoughts. Remember, you are living in the presence of God. Live accordingly. Hope was meeting with a, a young teenage girl back in Seneca 1. And this, the mother of the girl asked Hope to meet with her daughter, and Hope did. And in the course of their discussion, conversation, Hope said to her, Ashley, you need to remember that God is always with you. You know what she said? She looked at Hope and said, is that supposed to scare me? I, I can't even tell you where that girl is today. It's not good. It's not supposed to scare us, but it should motivate us to purity of life. And it should motivate us to not want to be doing anything that we would be ashamed of doing if it were the last moments of our life. So Paul says, remember, we are here for a reason. 
We are here, first of all, by the grace of God. He's worked salvation into our lives by his grace. And now it is God who works in us both to will and to do of his good will. So we collaborate with him so that we can make an impact in this world in which he has placed us. And he has prepared each and every one of us to do good works. You can have an impact on people's lives that I could never touch, ever. Just think of the people you work with. I, I may never meet those people, ever. But you have contact with them throughout the week. What an impact you can have on their lives. That's not a mistake. That's God's perfect plan. And God has a perfect plan for each one of us. Let's be sure to follow it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. Thank you for your gracious, gracious invitation and for graciously bringing us into your family through faith in Christ. And now, Lord, we pray that as a result we would be careful to be committed and dedicated to performing the good works that you have prepared for us from before eternity. We pray that we would be committed to this as individuals and as a church family. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, at this time, any praises and or prayer requests at this time. Yes, Sean.